Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast. I'm Kimberly Johnson in D.C., and today I'll be talking with Tim Wise. He's one of the most prominent anti-racist writers and educators in the United States. He's the author of seven books, including his latest, Under the Affluence, Shaming the Poor, Praising the Rich, and Sacrificing the Future of America. He helped defeat neo-Nazi political candidate David Duke two times in the 1990s, and we're going to talk about that. He's been featured in several documentaries, and he appears regularly on CNN and MSNBC to discuss race issues. He wrote a viral thread um, tweet a couple of weeks ago about how Democrats should be focusing on Trump's racism in order to win the 2020 election. So we're definitely going to focus on that. Um, I'm really looking forward to this interview. But first, Start Me Up is a listener-supported show, and I rely on people like you who listen to the free shows to support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. I don't have corporate backing, and I alone produce the show. And right now, I'm not using any advertisers. So please consider supporting the Start Me Up podcast for at least a dollar a month, maybe $2, $3. You won't even miss it. And it really helps me keep things moving along. Any dollar amount is welcome. And for just $5 a month, you get access to two extra bonus shows, the End Another Thing segment. That's just for listeners. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's political. Sometimes we laugh. Sometimes we cry. It's always fun. It's always interesting. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup and sign up today. Now, please enjoy my interview with Tim Wise. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I've, I've wanted to have you for a while. Um, primarily, I was introduced to you uh, by that viral tweet that you did that I want to discuss a little later. But um, sure. You are just so passionate about the issue of defeating uh, defeating white supremacy and racism, and I'm really grateful. But I want to know what got you started. Um, well, I mean, it's a it's a long story. I'll try to do the the short version of it. Okay. Um, you know, I wrote about this in, in my <clears throat> my first book is a memoir, White Like Me, and I go into greater detail there. I think for for anyone um, who, who does anti-racism work of, of any kind. And particularly if we're, if we're white, there's always a story, obviously it's not something that I think white people just sort of wake up one day and go, Oh, well, you know, I think, uh, I have nothing better to do. Let me, let me go fight white supremacy. It's not, you know, it's not, and, and it's, and let's be honest, it's also not something that they really teach you about or even how to do in school. You know, I always yeah. joke about, I remember being in like ninth grade or 10th grade and taking that um, armed services vocational aptitude battery, the ASVAB. It's one of the you know, standardized tests they give you in high school, whether you intend to go to the armed services or not. They just sort of give it to you. And, and um, you know, it has a list of all the different possible career choices at the, at the front. I mean, it's like 400 things. It's hmm. like physician, engineer, you know, nurse, dentist, whatever, all the way down to like I think like the lowliest paid position was maybe like the ticket taker at the movie theater. Right. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, but nowhere on that list was, you know, anti-racism educator or activist. So clearly there has to be a story to bring anyone to, to this point. And mm -hmm. for me, I think it's a combination of um, upbringing, family upbringing, and also just some circumstances that I found myself in. So I'm, I'm from the South. I've always lived in the South. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, I, I, I was raised by two parents who, uh, neither one of them were activists. They'd been a little too young to have been actively involved in the civil rights struggle, uh, but they were certainly amenable to it and supportive of it. And um, so I was raised in this sort of 
Southern liberal environment, which is say not not left wing. I was not a red diaper baby. I was not you know raised by by overt leftists, but you know sort of Bobby Kennedy liberals, right? Yeah. And um, which in the South, I guess in 1968, 69, 70, um, even after Bobby had been killed, it was still you know somewhat radical for down here. So um, I was you know, I raised my parents who made some decisions that I, and particularly my mom, um, made some decisions that I think were instrumental in that. I was uh, enrolled in preschool at a historically black college across town, Tennessee State University, where I would be one of maybe three kids in the room who weren't black. They were mostly the children of professors or staff or administrators mm-hmm. or occasionally people just in the neighborhood around TSU in North Nashville. Um, and, you know, my mom made that decision for really conscious reasons. She knew that I was going to be the year she made that decision was the year they began integrating Nashville public schools, which I would be starting in a couple of years. And she wanted me to have some context for um, an integrated setting. She had gone to those same schools, as had my father. They'd never been in an integrated setting. And she wanted me to know what it was, I guess, not to always be the norm. Um, and she also sent me to TSU to piss off her parents. So let's not <laughs> romanticize it too much, right? There was also a bit of that. Um, so I spent, you know, my first sort of year and a half to two years of educational experience, number one, surrounded in a, in a sort of black context where my peers were black. And I realized like every white person says they have black friends and we're usually lying. But like for me, <laughs> That's all I had yeah. for maybe a couple of years. And then secondly, it also meant that I was learning um, how to respect black authority because most of the women that ran that program were African-American women. So at a very early age, I was being subordinated to black authority, which is very rare for white folks even today at that age or at any age, let alone in 1972, 71, whatever it was. And so um, I think that was a cornerstone experience because then when I started elementary school in 74, here in Nashville, and I was in an integrated contact schools that were probably 38 to 42% black, roughly 40% black. Um, and I had some black teachers, some of the teachers that they allowed to keep teaching after desegregation, because keep in mind, a lot of black teachers lost their jobs. A lot of black administrators lost their jobs. They didn't think that they were qualified, I guess, to come over to the to the whiter schools, even though they were some of the best teachers in the system. But I did have some incredible black educators who I respected a, a lot because they were so like the educators I'd had at TSU. This is like the, this was the authority that I respected. I didn't really respect the old white women, but, but the black women, I I liked a lot. And um, it meant that, you know, two things were going to happen for me that I think weren't going to happen for most white kids in that context. One was that when my black friends, people I identified with, some of whom I had gone to Tennessee State with, others of whom I didn't know, but they looked like the kids I knew. And so I sort of naturally cleaved to them when they were being mistreated, if they were being tracked into the lower track, academically, which they were even in first grade, being put in one side of the room doing one kind of curriculum while the white kids were doing another, or if they were being disciplined more harshly, even though we were all doing the same shit, breaking the same rules, but but they were getting sent to the office and I wasn't. Um, I was going to notice that because Mm -hmm. I was now being separated from my peer group, frankly. And I think the other white kids who didn't grow up in a black context like TSU would have probably not even noticed it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not It's not like they would have been like, oh good, I'm glad I'm not on the same side of the room as black people, but it's just that they wouldn't have thought twice about it. And then the second thing was that um, being at Tennessee State meant that from a very early age, I learned to respect black authority, which 20 some odd years later, when I was working in public housing in New Orleans as a community organizer, working mostly with African-American women who were the leaders in that community, I was already sort of predisposed to listen to them, to believe them, Mm -hmm. to respect them when they talked about their lives, not to challenge them, not to accuse them of seeing things or exaggerating things or making things up or playing a race card or any of that, right? But actually to 
to listen to them. So that was instrumental. And then in addition to that, uh, to make the short story as short as I can, um, over the course of school from K through 12 and then on to college, I went to New Orleans for college, went to Tulane, very white institution in the middle of a black city, both demographically and culturally black city. And I just had certain experiences, people that I met, mentors who came into my life, um, things that I learned in the 80s. I was an anti-apartheid activist in New Orleans, which at that time, of course, meant dealing with apartheid in South Africa, not the de facto apartheid that still existed and still does exist in this country. Um, so we were pushing for divestment from South Africa, from companies operating to bolster white minority rule there, uh, pushing for sanctions on the part of the United States government. Um, and there were some activists in New Orleans who saw me as the sort of, you know, titular head of that uh, anti-apartheid movement at Tulane, so one of the founders of it, and I think saw in me maybe some potential as an activist, sort of, you know, pulled me to the side and very, very gently and sometimes not so gently uh, reminded me that although it was really great uh, what we were all doing there, that we might want to give some attention to the de facto apartheid conditions that existed literally down the road. Uh, in New Orleans, and it was that kind of of experience and the people that I met that enlightened me to the need to to go sort of beyond um, just the South African context and 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 bring in all that I knew from childhood. Really, some of which, frankly, I had suppressed. I mean, I certainly saw racism aimed at my friends growing up, but I think one of the things whiteness does is it teaches us not to pay attention to that, and then we have to be brought back to it. You know. Wow. Wow. That's, in, you know, one of the things that I have in common with you is that, uh, I mean, just for a brief time, I went to a school in Silver Lake, California, where I was one of the minorities. It was primarily Hispanic. Um, oh. There were mostly Hispanic and Asian. And I would say of the white and African American population, we probably represented about 10%. And um, my experience there, though, it's interesting because I was I, I can't say that I understand what it's like to stand in a person of color shoes only because as a white person, I was never picked on for being white. I was never right. discriminated against or singled out. I mean, I was fortunate enough to have that experience and 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 have a mother who was, you know, like if if somebody that she knew or in our family ever said the N word, my mother stood up right away and said, do not yeah. say that word around me. So I learned yeah. from a very early age that that was wrong and discriminatory and ugly. Um, right. But, you know, I mean, like I said, even though I had the experience of being a minority, I never had the experience of being discriminated against just because I'm white. Right. So, no, it's a it's an important point that you bring up. And, and actually, two things I want to I want to say to it. Uh, one, and I tell this story in um, in in white like me. Um, not only did I not get picked on for being white, but when I got teased, uh, you know, there's just kids get shit from other mm -hmm, kids. Yeah. You know, get <laughs> I, I would get teased because I had like this huge Jufro, like this, this you know, <laughs> which I do, I, I used to have that kind of hair. I, don't, I hardly have hair now, but I used to have this like little, like, it was weird because it was a Jufro, but it was also like Peter Frampton, <laughs> Frampton Comes Alive cover album. Uh, and Peter Frampton is not Jewish, but but uh, but it was that kind of hair. It was just everywhere. It was like Willie Ames and Ada's and right, which are right, references right. that are not going to mean shit to anybody that's young. But, but um, uh, so I had that hair and I would get teased for that. But it was funny when I would get when I would get when I would catch hell from my black friends, it was very interesting. I mean, I talk about one day in particular. I was in third grade and we were all playing football. We were like tossing the football around. It was me and two black friends of mine. And um, 
and and we were playing like this sort of keep away game, right? Where two people would stand and throw the ball back and forth, and the third person would be in the middle trying to intercept the ball. Yeah. And uh, I was real short, you know, tiny kids. So it was hard for. I mean, I was good. I was a good athlete, but I was it was hard for me to jump high enough. If you toss the ball high enough, like I was not going to catch it. There's just <laughs> no way. And um, but these guys that were good buddies of mine, right, would throw the ball back and forth, and it was funny. After a while, I started intercepting like every single pass, which didn't really make sense because, again, all they had to do was toss it a little higher, yeah. and there's no way I'd catch it. But it's almost like they were throwing it right to me. Huh. And every time I would catch it, they would laugh, and they would say, my, and then they would use the N-word. I'm not going to repeat it here, obviously, right. right? But they would use the version of that word that ends with A, which right. is said, again, like as a buddy kind of thing yeah. in their mind. But they were using it as a mocking thing. Now, what does it say that when they did tease me, they teased me with an anti-black term, right? Right. They didn't tease. It wasn't like, hey, honky, good catch. Right. You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't like, way to go, cracker. You know, that because that would have <laughs> meant nothing. Like right. that would exactly. have been, I ne so even when they gave me shit, they gave me shit in a way that actually spoke to this larger social dynamic that is inherently anti-black. Because yeah. as I learned many years later, I was watching a, a, a comic do a routine where he talked about making people his, you know, that word. Right. And it was about, it was about making them jump for you when you say jump, run and do things for you when you say to do it. So in a way, these friends of mine knew what it was to be that thing. Yeah. And yeah, in that moment, they got to make me that thing a little bit. But at the end of the day, like they knew, and so did I, I suppose, like who actually owns this ball, you know what right. I mean? Yeah. And, and so, and then the second story, uh, speaking to what you just said, when I was working in public housing. So, you know, in New Orleans in the, in the mid nineties, um, public housing was I mean, 98 and a half percent black. And obviously it was poor. Um, and I was one of very few white people you would ever see in the community who was not a cop or a social worker and being white, you know, I remember telling people what I did and they would say, Oh my God, you know, aren't you scared? Aren't you scared? You're so outnumbered. They're going to you know, do something to you because you're white. And not only did that not happen, but my response always was no. In fact, I'm probably the safest person in that neighborhood when I'm there because they know, first of all, they figure I am a cop or a social worker. Yeah. And so if they mess with me, I'm either going to arrest them or take their kid. Right. So right. nobody's going to nobody's going to fuck with me. And and or what they're going to do. The one time somebody did say something to me, it was a cop who came up to me and wondered if I was in the wrong neighborhood wow. and, and was trying to help me get out of the neighborhood yeah. and probably thought I was there to buy drugs, which is another racist assumption, you know, right. cause white people didn't don't need to go to the hood to get their drugs. Like yeah. we got plenty of them. Right. But, <laughs> right. but so, so even when we find ourselves in black and brown space, typically, just yeah. like you said, we're not going to, we're not really going to catch out. Now I'm not saying it never happens. I've right. certainly heard stories, but even the stories that I've heard, I remember a story from a young woman years ago, I was speaking at her school and, and she was livid at my presentation. She comes up to me during the book signing. She's like, how dare you say that, that, you know, I have white privilege. I grew up in a, in an all black neighborhood. Well, obviously not because she was there, but like a, a mostly black neighborhood in the Bronx, she said, and every day they called me, you know, names and, and they gave me shit for being white. And I listened to her story and it was awful. And I said, well, you know, the people that did that to you were real assholes. And I'm really sorry that that happened. Mm -hmm. But I said, I just want you to think about one thing. Have you ever asked yourself how it came to be 
that there are neighborhoods like that that are basically all black. Mm -hmm. Like, how did that happen? Because the only reason you, meaning that girl, were in a situation like that where you could be so outnumbered, where people could think, I can take advantage of this kid, is because of a system of mm -hmm. institutional racism that separated where we live. If we didn't have institutional racism, that shit wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, they're assholes, but so are we for allowing that yeah. to happen, you know, yeah. and that's the thing I think sometimes we miss. Yeah. You know, I kind of want to go back to that first thing you were talking about, because um, there is no word that really hurt like uh, an epithet. Ep I can never say that word epithet, whatever epithet, 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 epithet yeah. uh, that can never that can hurt a white person, especially a white man. Like, for instance, you know, I think sexism and racism um, have a lot of similarities and like you can call a woman a slut and right. take her down you calling like you said calling a white man a cracker does he give right. a shit does he care no. there no. is no equivalent just like the n-word there is no equivalent to um calling somebody that so it's um it's 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 just unbelievable how our system is set up and then and then i want to go to the white privilege because you know i've listened to a bunch of your speeches you're so amazing i recommend anybody read your you know to read your books but also watch you online talk aside from this interview because everything you say is so fascinating and it opens your eyes to maybe you already knew it but you didn't know how to express it so tim knows how to express it and so i want to ask you about white privilege because sure. there are a lot of white people who reject the idea of white pri privilege because they're poor. Sure. And so I want to know how can we make them understand what that is and like what what is it in your words? Well, you know, the thing about about white privilege, right, is it's not um it's not a material thing mm -hmm. per se. It, it it has material ramifications, right? But it's like any other system of privilege. And there are lots of different privilege systems. Mm -hmm. and, and none of us have ever said white was the only one. Right. Obviously, there's class privilege, and everybody realizes that. I get it. People get defensive about the term white privilege because they assume that they're being accused of yeah. having been born with a silver spoon in their mouth, you know, and they feel like they weren't, and they probably weren't. But let's think about, let's just make it easy. Think about class privilege for a second. Okay, no one usually disputes that the wealthy have privileges and advantages that other people don't mm -hmm. have. And yet we know that there are rich people who lead miserable lives, mm -hmm. who have shitty relationships with their family, who suffer unexpected illnesses. Now, granted, they got some money maybe to pay the bills on that, but they also, some of them have heart attacks and die young. It's not like every rich person has a wonderful life. I've yeah. known plenty of miserable rich people, but that doesn't and I've known, and by the way, I've known poor and working class people who are very happy people, mm -hmm. who lead fantastic lives, who've got really good relationships with their family. But that doesn't mean, does it, that there's no class privilege just because I can point to some individual exceptions to a general rule. Or think about ability and disability. Now, there are plenty of able-bodied people who are poor, and there are plenty of able-bodied people who are struggling financially. Um, but that doesn't mean there's no able-bodied privilege. Like, on balance, it pays to be able-bodied, even though I'm sure there are some people with a disability that got money in the bank, right? And so they can probably buy some things, have some things that even some able-bodied people don't have. But that doesn't change the general trajectory, right? And so when we think of privilege, we need to think of it in broad terms. And all that is really being said is, on balance, 
it pays to be X, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't mean that every single time that the person who is X competes against a person who is Y or Z or whatever, that they're going to win, right? It's just because you have an advantage doesn't mean you're going to win every competition, that you're always going to be on top. But it means that on balance, there is an advantage to that. And the advantage sometimes is material, yes, and there certainly is historic uh, privilege that is material that we can't deny. The fact that white families have a median net worth that is 15 times that of the typical black family is not a result of hard work or effort. It is, and all the evidence points it out, the result of cumulative advantage and disadvantage. White families five times more likely to inherit something from their family than black families, for instance. Black families actually much more likely to be helping their parents Mm -hmm. and helping their grandparents, helping older relatives than giving to younger ones. So it's actually almost like reverse inheritance, right? Because now you've got a generation of black folks that are actually doing better than prior generations, and they're trying to help the ones that came before, Mm -hmm. whereas white families are handing down shit to their kids because we can, right? So, so. There is material privilege that that generally attaches. Again, exceptions duly noted. But the the bigger point is that we're not talking about just money and stuff. When I think of white privilege, I I am talking most. I can't speak for other people. Other people have their own ways of looking at it. My way of looking at it is much more about a psychology and much more about you know to put it in really simple terms. White privilege is about the ability to go through your day not having to think about some shit that people of color have to think yeah. about, right? It's about it's about not having to think about my race and how that is going to mark me in the society in a way that could harm me. I'm not worried about the way cops are going to view me. I'm not worried about the way teachers are going to view me. Now, I might be um, a lawbreaker. I might be a shitty student, and a teacher might know that I'm a shitty student, even though I'm white, but they're never going to attribute that to blackness. And the reason that's important is, let's say, for example, I was not a good student. I really did not get my shit together academically until like last Wednesday, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) And I'm 50 years old, so I'm I'm a little slow, uh, a little slow learner. But but I was really not a good student. I always underachieved. I was pretty bright. I mean, I think I had capacity, but I just didn't I just didn't really apply myself. And yet, because the teachers knew that was just me, like I had, you know, I wasn't living up to my potential. They always worked with me. They always believed in me. They always kept me in the advanced level classes, even though I wasn't doing real great in those classes. Now, if I had been a person of color. Same quality student, let's say sort of a eh, you know, B student, probably could have been an A student, but didn't really work real hard. Um, what would have been the risk? The risk would have been that if they came to view my underperformance as connected to being black, they very likely wouldn't have kept me in mm-hmm. those advanced classes. They wouldn't have worked with me because they would have assumed that this was almost like an immutable characteristic that I just couldn't overcome. You know, like, well... You know, they figured Tim Wise, this individual, which is the privilege of whiteness, is you get to be viewed as an individual, right? So then the teacher will work with you, or the cop who stops you and treats you as an individual doesn't think that the odds are you've got drugs in your car, even though the data says that white folks are equally or more likely to have illegal narcotics in our possession than black folks, but we are given the presumption of innocence. Mm -hmm. That is a privilege. And here we are, you know, you and I are talking um, on the anniversary of Mm 9-11. And, you know, we all know that here here we've had several years, going back to 2014, where we have had well over 100 individuals who have been killed now uh, or seriously injured. A couple, I think 150 or more that have been seriously injured, probably around 100, at least five or six dozen who have been killed by white supremacist, white nationalist, far-right, misogynistic terrorism. And yet none of us who were white 
are walking around thinking that we're going to get profiled, we're going to be right. assumed to be terrorists, yeah. and yet we know on 9-11, 18 years after the attack on New York and Washington, um, that, that there are Muslim folk who are walking around knowing that if they are visibly Muslim by the clothing they wear, by the fact that they pray, uh, you know, uh, perhaps in public at a certain time of day, if it's one of the times that they're going to pray, um, or, or just based on that we know they're Muslim, that they are going to be viewed and suspected uh, of, of terrorism. So that is a real privilege to be able to remain an individual, even when other people like you do horrible, horrific shit. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many things that you say that I just I kind of like I'm like, oh, my God, me, too. And one of those one of those white privilege stories that I have and I have several um, is uh, when the L.A. riots were happening. I lived in Glendale, California, which is it's primarily white, but it's a lot of Armenians that live there. So yeah. it's like a, a, it's a huge Armenian population. But, every, you know, there are some blacks and Mexicans and Hispanics and all of that. But mostly it's white people. And so um I didn't know that the riots were happening. I had no idea this was going on. I was coming home from a girlfriend's house, and um, she probably lived a good 15-minute car drive away. So I, I started, and, and she lived in an affluent neighborhood. So I was driving from um, her house to mine, and I would say maybe three or four minutes into the drive, I noticed a police car was following me, and I got nervous because I'm thinking, mm -hmm. oh, my God, I want to get pulled over. Anyway, so the cop never pulls me over, and I see that it's a white man, and the whole time I'm nervous because the guy is just trailing me, and I'm thinking, yeah. what the hell? Why yeah. is he following me? So I get home. I pull into my driveway, and he, he speeds off, or he doesn't speed off, but he drives off, and it occurred to me when I found out that there were riots happening, that he was making sure that this white woman got home safely. Right. And you're in Glendale. You're like not even close. No. To I mean, it's good happening. 40, 50 miles away from where it was happening. Yeah. I mean, you're a good, you're a good, I mean, I know that stretch of road really well. You're nowhere near no. uh, what is now South LA, what was then called South Central. You're, you're, you're nowhere near the ride zone at all. But he's probably just trying to make sure you get home. Yeah. And and yeah, there are all these stories like that. And and when when the riots touched off, I was living in Houston with my girlfriend at that time. And um, and you know it was really the first story that got wall to wall twenty four hour news coverage in this country, which now we take for granted. But really, prior to L.A., it wasn't really a thing. And um, and I remember you know hearing these these stories. You know, if you watch the if you watch the video uh, footage that came out of L.A. and you and then you asked people, um. Who's rioting? Who who are the rioters? And and uh, what do you think the demographic breakdown of the rioters uh, uh, or uh, or or those rebelling or uprising, whichever term people prefer? Because there was a long history of police abuse to mm -hmm. which black folks were responding. So really, calling it an uprising or rebellion is more accurate. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, if you ask people about that, they would say, "Oh, it's like seventy percent black people." So it's like overwhelmingly black people. What's interesting is. Um, it wasn't the case at all. Like the actual breakdown, according to LAPD numbers, um, about 25% of those engaged in the uprising in any kind of an aggressive, violent way, smashing windows, whatever, throwing rocks, about 25% were black. Now, that's still disproportionate relative to the percentage of LA that's black, of course, because it was happening in that zone of South LA, which was at that time, a disproportionately black community. Now it's more a, a Latinx community, but um, certainly at that time, um, black community. And but but what that means is, well, who were the rest of the riders? About sixty percent were, were Latinx folk 
who were also uh, upset about the history of mistreatment at the hands of the cops and authority figures, because those are folks that remember the Zoot Suit riots of the 40s um, and, and the way that Mexican-Americans in particular had been treated uh, in the L.A. area. And But then that leaves another like 11, 12 percent who were white. Mm -hmm. and, and there's almost no footage of that. But that's LAPD's own numbers. Now, there was, interestingly, a story. There was some footage that was taken by reporters on the ground. And it sort of like was B-roll, you know, footage, just like background roll that was sent out to all these different stations. And there was a CBS affiliate that I remember reading about at the time uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that got footage sent to them. And I'm assuming maybe from the Los Angeles CBS affiliate um, that showed a during the, the heart of the riot, there was a white woman who went into uh, part of the riot zone and was looting dresses like designer dresses. Wow from a, a store and throwing these designer dresses in the back of her BMW. Oh my God. And, and, and the people who took the footage like came up to her thinking like, where the hell did you come from? Because mm -hmm. she ain't from around there. And they were like, what are you doing? And her answer on camera was everybody else is doing it. I thought I would. Oh that God. footage gets to Milwaukee and the people in Milwaukee are like, oh shit, we got to run this. Like this is, this is crazy, you know? And then their, but their, their producer was like, we, we can't, we're not going to run that. That's got nothing to do with the story. The story isn't about white women looting designer dresses. It's about South Central L.A. blowing up and it's black and brown folks. Now, I get it, right? She was an anomaly, perhaps, mm -hmm. the rich white woman that comes in from the valley or wherever the hell she came from, but or from Beverly Hills or whatever. But the point is, when we sanitize the footage mm -hmm. and we don't show that, we reinforce a particular yeah. narrative. And here we are. You know, I posted something this morning on Twitter uh, that speaks to that with regard to this 9-11 anniversary on 9-11, uh, literally within two hours of the uh, the towers being attacked, uh, I was I was in Florida at the time doing a seminar on, of all things, racial bias and reporting and journalism at the Pointer Institute, uh, which is a journalism institute down there. And one of the people who was with me, and there was a bunch of us at this event, and one of the people who was there for the four-day seminar um, was Heidi Byrick, who works at Southern Poverty Law Center. And um, at that time, she, she went online almost immediately onto some of these white nationalist chat boards, Stormfront and other ones, and, and noticed that these neo-Nazis were applauding, celebrating, excited, giddy wow. about the 9-11 attacks. And one of them, Billy Roper, longtime neo-Nazi, Klansman, everything else, um, posted like within two hours of the event that he wished that our people, meaning white supremacists, had the testicular fortitude to do what these terrorists had done. And so they're all talking about how great it was and how wonderful it was. And granted, that's not the story per se of what happened that day. Like that event clearly was not done by white supremacists, right? But the fact that nobody even talked about that, like, you know, it's not just the, these, uh, these 19 hijackers who were happy. It's not just some people in the Muslim world who may be, you know, Islamic extremists who were happy. You know, they showed that damn footage from the West Bank of Palestinians celebrating over and over and over again, like 30, 30 Palestinians, not representative of Palestinian people, not representative of Palestinians in the West Bank. Oh, and by the way, Palestinians had nothing to do with 9-11, but they showed that damn footage of 30 Palestinians celebrating, though they were every bit as disconnected from the event as Billy Roper and these Nazis. But by not talking about Billy Roper and the Nazis and how excited they were, they made the narrative one of, Islam is the enemy. Islam is the enemy. So let's not look at white supremacists who want to do terrorism. And here we are, right, 18 years later, and that's the bulk of terrorism in the country. I don't think that's a coincidence. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I kind of want to switch gears now because I want to talk to you a little about uh, when you uh, helped defeat David Duke. Um, Now, I was reading about that, and and pardon me for not writing down the dates, but I know that there were two elections. I believe the first one he was running to be a senator. Is that is that right? Yeah, well, there there actually have been three elections uh, around that time. One actually was in uh, 88, 89, uh, early 89. He won a a state legislative race in Louisiana. So he was actually in the state house in Louisiana, won a race by 242 votes. And then he announced shortly thereafter that he was going to run uh, for the United States Senate in 1990. And that's where you came in. Right. That well, I had been involved when I was still a student. Okay. Uh, I've been involved in some of the anti-Duke stuff around the legislative race, but I graduated in 1990, and my first job after graduating was getting involved with the coalition that was formed to prevent him from winning that Senate race. And then 91 was the governor's race. Uh, so, so when you were working on that first one, um, I was reading that basically you they didn't want to focus on his racism. They were frightened to do that. And your whole thing was that, and I'll let you talk about it, but I'm just going to go over what I took from it, is that um, the fact that you know you weren't talking about racism so much and you were talking about policy basically normalized his racism. Um, so then the next election, in the governor election, you guys did focus on racism. So in the first election, he lost, but he lost... Um, by a smaller number, and when you did focus on racism, he lost by a larger margin. So just well, that's, yeah, that, yeah, that's that's close to, to, to what it was. So okay. basically, basically, what happened was um, when he ran the the state legislative, when he won the state legislative seat, there had been a policy of the local media in the New Orleans uh, media market to pretty much not talk about Duke. Um, because they didn't want to give him a platform. They felt that he thrived on media attention. So right up until the very end, there had been sort of a, a blackout on information. Then finally, they sort of realized, oh, shit, we probably ought to talk about the fact that this guy was you know, the former head of the Klan, and he had all these neo-Nazi connections and this you know, 30-year history, or not 30, at that time, 20-year mm-hmm. history of overt white supremacist extremism. But it was a little too little too late, and he wins that statehouse seat. So then he announces for Senate, and, and there was this sort of struggle between people within our coalition. So our coalition that came together, and it was a political action committee, a 501c4 uh, PAC that was formed, had a lot of disparate threads like all coalitions do. And you know, you're know, you not gonna agree with everyone in the coalition. The coalition included uh, Republicans, some of whom were quite conservative, but frankly didn't like the fact that David Duke was messing up their brand. Um, it also included some relatively liberal uh, Republicans. Beth Rickey was one of the founders. She was a longtime Republican activist, um, but she was just appalled by Duke's racism and really honestly uh, wanted to purge uh, racism from the Republican political ranks altogether. Then you had other people who were Democrats and other people who like, you know, like myself and my boss, Lance Hill, um, uh, the executive director of the group that were clearly on the left of the Democratic Party even. And so you had a lot of people and we all had different ideas, right? And and as a as a sort of a lowly staffer at first, my ideas weren't really. I don't think anybody cared what I thought. But Lance and I agreed that it was really, as did Larry Powell, who was a history professor at Tulane and one of the founders of the coalition, all agreed that the only way that you can run against Duke um, is to talk about his extremism and talk about the existential threat he poses to the values of pluralism and multiracial democracy um, and the threat that he poses to not just those values, but the living of those values, in this case, in the state of Louisiana. And there were other people within the coalition 
who were nervous about that. And they and they had different reasons why, but essentially it all boiled down to, you know, look, we need racists to vote against Duke too. And if we talk about his racism, that might actually make them like him more. And so let's talk about other things. Now, they didn't really want to talk about policy in the 90 race because, you know, the only policies that David Duke talked about were race-related policies. Like his whole platform was blaming black people basically for every problem white people in Louisiana had. So if your taxes were too high, it was because of welfare going to those people. If you didn't have a job, it wasn't because the oil economy had bottomed out. It was because affirmative action had given that job to a black person. If your schools weren't any good, it was because integration had ruined them. If you were afraid to go home at night or walk out on the street, it was because you know black people were going to mug you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the right wingers in our coalition, the conservatives, they didn't really want to talk about policy mm-hmm. um, because that would have required you know challenging some of the things that, frankly, they agreed with. Mm-hmm. What they wanted was even worse. Like a policy focus would have been welcome compared to what they wanted. They actually said. You know, we should talk about the fact that David didn't pay his taxes for three years. Hmm. And we were all sort of sitting around going, you know, what the fuck is that? Like, <laughs> didn't pay his taxes. Like, the guy's a Nazi. He literally, we had we had former girlfriends of his that talked about how he used to, you know, celebrate Hitler's birthday every April 20th oh with an official birthday party at his house where he'd invite people over and they'd have beer and chips and cake and, you know, sit around and toast to, to Hitler. This is a guy who had active Nazis in his campaigns um, you know, had been running after he left the Klan in 1980. He had been running an overt white supremacist neo-Nazi organization, which was entitled the National Association for the Advancement of White People. Which, aside from the absurd redundancy of such an organization in America, was actually a Nazi organization that called for the racial separation of the country, called for eugenic sterilization program, master race creation program, similar to what Hitler had done in Germany. So we thought, like. How are you going to take a guy who does all that and talk about his tax rate? Yeah. Like, that's just that's crazy. You know, and then they also said, well, we should talk about the fact that he that he uh, dodged the draft in Vietnam and that he lied about it. He said he went over there and and did right. Did uh, rice runs behind enemy lines with the CIA. Well, that was all bullshit. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like, is that really what you want to talk about? The guy's a Nazi. You want to mm-hmm. talk about whether he served in Vietnam or not? Like, that's 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 nonsense. And. So there was this big power struggle, and ultimately we had these consultants who were very mainstream Democratic consultants. They weren't they weren't conservatives, uh, at least in theory. They came in, they did some polling, and the polling. I, now I've read the polls, read them at the time, went back and read them again uh, three weeks ago, and they are very very clear that if the public was fully aware of his ongoing ties mm-hmm. to, to white supremacists. Not the, not the fact he'd been in the Klan. That didn't seem to have much traction because people wanted to be forgiving or whatever. But as long as you could show that he was still connected to these people, mm-hmm. which we could easily show, they would turn against him. But what the conservatives in the coalition latched onto were these parts of the poll that showed that the, the one thing that seemed to bother certain white people the most was the tax thing and the Vietnam thing. And they said, well, that's what we should talk about. And, we, and, you know, Lance, my boss, was like, yeah, whatever. And we just sort of ignored that. And we tried to run a campaign focused on race, but we had to sort of compromise. And so the commercials that we ran tended to, I think, mix the message. Like, yeah, you'd mentioned the fact that he'd been selling pro-Nazi books from his legislative office. And you'd mentioned the fact that his campaign manager, when he ran for president very briefly in 1988, had been a former member of the American Nazi Party. And then the very next thing you'd mention is that he didn't pay his taxes for three years and he dodged the draft. And to me and and to a lot of us, it was like, 
this is confusing and it's going to come across as confusing and there's no moral core message. Mm -hmm. And um, and sure enough, you know, he ended up uh, he did lose, but he got 44 percent of the vote. He got 60, six, zero percent of the white vote. So um, then when he ran for governor, you know, we sort of jettisoned the expert consultants um, and said, screw that. It's mm -hmm. important that we beat David Duke, but it's also important that we beat him the right way. Mm -hmm. Because the problem with the way we did it in the Senate race, and this is something Lance said the night that Duke lost the election, the cameras were there, we were having a big election, quote unquote, party, but it was very somber for us because Duke had done so well. And the, the news put the microphone in, in Lance's face and asked him what he thought. And his response was, tonight was a referendum on hate and hate won. And it was very confusing to people. What do you mean hate won? David Duke lost. And he said, yeah, but what you don't understand is Dukeism lives on mm -hmm. to fight another day because it wasn't fully repudiated. So in the governor's race, our idea was we're we can beat him again. You know, we, we, we know we can beat him now. We know we can beat him with whatever approach you want to you want to use. We can win if winning is 56-44. But if you want to deal a death blow uh, or a crippling blow to Dukeism, you have to take on the ideology. It matters how you win. And so we stopped listening to the consultants uh, for the most part, and we ran a campaign that focused on the extremism, but then broadened that and actually started looking at the extremism of his public policy Idea. So, yeah, we talked about policy, but mm -hmm. we specifically talked about it as the way that Duke was trying to divert attention from the real problems that people face by blaming scapegoats mm -hmm. for those problems. So, yeah, we talked policy, but not we didn't just say like, oh, you know, uh, his tax plan is bad or, you know, his idea for yeah. education is bad. It was like, no, all this shit is racist and it's all being done to push buttons and make you forget the actual cause of your problems. So it was very much about racial scapegoating and what we call the politics of prejudice and manipulation. And and ultimately in that race, I mean, he still, look, he, he got basically 67,000 more votes uh, roughly the second time. Uh, than he did the first time, but he lost by a bigger margin. He lost 61 to 39. He only got 55% of the white vote, which is still scary as hell, but it yeah. did drop. And the reason was progressive white folks were uh, the base and the base of the, of the democratic voter uh, constituency, black and brown folks were turned out in larger numbers when we had a principled message. Yeah. You know, when you actually take the message about principle, you had people 28,000, I think it was Black folks registered on one day alone between the primary and the runoff because the way Louisiana did elections and still I guess they still do them this way is it's it's open primary. Everybody runs top two vote getters are in a runoff the next month. But you have an open registration period. So between the time of the primary and and the runoff right up until about a week, I think, before the runoff, you can register even if you weren't registered. So in, in the wake of Duke coming in second in the primary for governor, you had all these folks rush to the to the registration uh, to get registered. A lot of black folks, a lot of white liberal folks who realized the threat. Mm -hmm. Whereas when it was the Senate race and we're not really clear on what we're talking about, I think people were like, oh, what's the big deal? You know, and yeah. didn't think he really posed a threat. And, and even if he did, they weren't really sure what that threat was. But here we knew because we, we made it a much more um, clear focus. And I think, as you know, from that thread that you're referencing here, that my concern is that we didn't learn that lesson enough to apply it to fighting Trump. Yeah. And we're not doing that enough. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to kind of move into, because obviously you say Dukeism and now there's Trumpism and granted Trump, uh, air quote, won in 2016. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm watching 
the Democrats right now. And I'm, you know, I mean, obviously we do need to focus on um, their policies and Main Street, but um, the racism is such a big deal. And it's, I mean, it's beyond racism. I mean, it's also the way that he is um, cozying up to dictators, how he's dismantling democracy. There are so many things that I think the Democratic Party isn't talking about. Um, And so, I mean, what... You, you did this amazing amazing thread, so let's kind of go over it a little bit. I mean, we don't have to go over the entire thing, but just like the gist of it. Um, sure. You were talking about, let me get to my notes here. You, you made a, a, a comment about, um, here it is. Um, psychology wins elections, not public policy and sociology. So right. So go ahead with that. Yeah, one. I mean, basically the gist of the of the thread is that as I had been watching, like a lot of people, the sort of early Democratic candidate debates, the thing that struck me was, you know, everyone seems focused on, you know, here's why I'm the better candidate, because I've got a plan for this and a policy for this, and I can address this, and I'll deal with this better. And, you know, everybody sort of got their version of why that is. And I understand they're trying to differentiate themselves from a pack of like 3,700 candidates. So I understand the impulse. <laughs> but the problem The problem is that when you're running against a candidate like Trump, whose entire politic at this point is about the politics of prejudice and scapegoating, that's all he's got left. And I would say it was always the core of his campaign, Mm -hmm. but now it's really become like the thing, right? And And I realize, look, Donald Trump is not David Duke. David Duke is a straight up Nazi. Like it's not a term I use lightly. He is literally dispositioned a national socialist. Donald Trump is not. But Donald Trump plays the same game and goes to the same well of political and racial scapegoating to gain and to maintain power. And when you're dealing with someone like that, the idea that you can just argue, well, look, I've got a better plan for universal broadband in rural America. <laughs> the fuck is that? Like, like that makes no sense that you're going to sit there and talk about or even student loan debt. I mean, like stuff that's important. Don't get me wrong. Like all of that's important. Even even Medicare for all versus Medicare for America versus, you know, public option plus or whatever term people want to give. All that stuff is important and it is critical for us to have plans on that. But let's be very clear. The research on this could not be clearer. People do not by and large go and vote in elections based on public policy options. They do not sit there and compare websites and go down the fine print of this health plan versus that health plan versus this health plan versus that. The only people that do that are like Ezra Klein and Rachel Maddow (laughs) and like 37 other people that actually, I mean, like I I, I love policy. I used to do public policy research and advocacy. I'm into that stuff because I'm a policy and a data geek. I am not normal. That is not normal. That is not what most people do. Most people are looking for big picture visions and narratives. And so Trump has one, right? Trump's big narrative is you are at risk from those people. And those people can be brown folks from the global south. Those people can be Muslims from wherever they're from. Those people can be black folks in the cities. Those people can be, you know, uh, feminists. Those people can be whomever, right? And that narrative, however ridiculous, is very clear. You don't have to have a policy. Or if you do, you can just make it build a wall or Muslim Mm -hmm. registry, or deport them all, or lock them in cages. Like, it's real simple shit. Whereas the Democrats are coming out with like, here's my 10 point plan to better. It's like, nobody is listening to that. And at the end of the day, I was afraid and still am that that 
over-focus on specificity is perhaps a way to win a Democratic primary, but it definitely yeah. is not a way to win a general election. And so the question is, what is the way to do that? And my point is, look, you've got to deal with the psychology of this thing. And to me, the only way that you can build – well, here, here's, I guess, the real question for me is – what do you want to defeat? Do you just want to defeat Trump or do you want to deal a blow to Trumpism? Because I guess there are probably multiple ways to beat Trump. As you implied in the setup to this to this whole riff right now, he didn't really win the popular vote. So obviously you can defeat him in the popular vote and probably switch those, what was it, mm -hmm. 73,000 votes in three states, right? Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and, and Michigan. You can flip those 73,000 votes with probably a multitude of approaches. You might not even have to work that hard. Like, theoretically, I, I think he can be beaten with a number of different approaches and, frankly, by a number of different Democratic candidates. Mm -hmm. The question is, do you just want to eke out yeah. a couple of electoral college vote victory um, or in which case, you know, or, and a really narrow popular vote victory, in which case he will say it was stolen from him, mm -hmm. in which case a lot of people will believe it was stolen from him, in which case Trumpism will live on because people will think, well, there wasn't a, a defeat of Trumpism. It was just people got tired of him and they'll continue to look for the next Trump and Turning Point USA and groups like that will continue to try to clone the next generation of Trump people. Or do you want to deal a if not death blow, a serious knockout punch yeah. to Trumpism. Because it seems to me, if, if you want to do the latter, you got to do more than just win on points. You know what I mean? You you you, you can't. It's like playing baseball, and like, yeah, I can I can do like a squeeze bunt and get in the winning run and win in the 13th inning and extra innings, and that's still a victory. But that's not good enough here. Like, you need we need a victory that says Trumpism is no longer acceptable. And the only way you do that is with a message that says, this is about an existential threat to the to the pluralistic multicultural democracy that we care about in this country. And that message is very simple. It is very straightforward. It is one that says we are better than this. This is about who we are as a nation, the same kind of thing we said in Louisiana about who we are as a state. And that's the kind of message that will be, I think, as or more effective than any other the Democrats can craft for two reasons. Number one, it will drive the base. The base of the Democratic Party voters care about things like pluralism and multicultural democracy. So if you talk about that, they're going to get excited and charged up and they're going to go to the polls because they'll view the election as something bigger than just themselves. There's a bigger narrative about what we're fighting for. The second thing it does is it's, it's, it's the way that you can get some of those truly independent-minded, undecided people, which I don't think, first of all, there's that many of them, mm -hmm. because at this point, if you ain't made your mind right. up about Donald Trump, what the fuck is wrong with yeah. you, right? But, but to be honest, there are people out there, but I think if you say, listen, this is about who we are, you're better than this, we're better than this, those kind of people are going to go, yeah, you know, you're right. Whereas you're probably not going to get those undecided people with your health care plan, because if it was all about policy, they'd have made up their mind already. They've been hearing about policies. And then think about the never Trump Republicans, the supposedly reasonable Republicans out there. Well, what are the odds that you're going to get any of those people, people who sort of lean in the other direction, to ever agree with you on Medicare for all? Like you're not. You're not going to get them to agree on that. You're not going to get them to agree on canceling all the student loan debt. You're not going to get them to agree on the on the Green New Deal. But what you might be able to get them to at least agree on is if you were to come out and say, listen, this is about who we are as a nation, the existential threat posed to pluralism and multiracial democracy by this president. 
we all have disagreements about certain things. And you know what? We will get back to talking about and fighting about that and arguing about that. But we have to live to fight another day. And the only way that this country lives to fight another day, and by the country, I mean the principles of the country as a constitutional uh, multiracial democracy, can exist is if we defeat Trumpism and say this will no longer be acceptable. That's a message that I think can actually turn out people in larger numbers in a way that would deal a death blow, not just to Trump, but a significant um, blow, crippling blow to Trumpism. And so it matters how we win. That was the point of, of that thread. Well, when I listen to you, when I read your thread, when I listen to you, all I can focus on is, first of all, is Tom Perez calling you every day because he should? And second of all, I would certainly hope that um, when we do choose a nominee, that you would be advising that nominee. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know well, if that's even uh, happening, but I, I, I like pray for. <laughs> I want that to happen. I mean, is there any way that you can get to the nominee once that happens? I mean, because it seems to me that you know, I mean, I take whether it's Elizabeth Warren or it's Joe Biden or it's Bernie Sanders or whoever. I mean, a they'd have to be open to it. But I mean, it it just seems to me that your knowledge is so very specific, and obviously it's very right on. And the other thing that they're not talking about is Russia. And even though that's not your thing, um, this whole thing of racism is is so much more um, tangible and that we can see it. Whereas with the Russia attack and the cyber attack, there are still people who don't even know it's going on because the media doesn't focus on it and the Trump administration isn't doing anything about it. But um, but there is something that we can latch on to with the racism. And right. I just I so desperately want you to have access to the nominee. <laughs> you know, well, like, let's let's put it this way. I'm certainly not getting calls from from the party. And uh, uh, but I will say this, you know, that thread went viral and so that alone told me something because, you know, literally I woke up on a on a Sunday when I wrote that or a Saturday, whichever it was. And I just felt like, you know, I, had, I was having my first cup of coffee and I'm like, eh, I got something to say, but I don't really want to write an article yet about it. Let me just sort of put it together as a thread. And then pretty soon it was 37 posts or whatever it was. And um, I sent it out into the world, not really necessarily expecting for it to go viral at all. I just figured like, well, this will get, you know, get some eyeballs and mm -hmm. just sort of, at least I've said it and it's out there, you know. Um, but then it very, very quickly began to blow up, which to me said a couple of things. Number one, it doesn't mean I'm right necessarily, um, but it does mean that clearly it touched a nerve mm -hmm. because a lot of other people have the same concern, right? That we're overthinking the race, that we're overanalyzing specific policy, that we're being too wonky and too, you know, like, look at all the great ideas I've got um, and, and not focusing enough on the big picture. And if a lot of people are wondering that, then the question is, well, are all these people just being paranoid and silly or might we be on to something? And then can we discuss what that is? And I'm very open to people that say, you know, and there was some pushback on the thread by people that I think misunderstood the thread, but you know, it's easy to misunderstand a Twitter thread because you can't be as specific as you want to be. Yeah. There's a certain degree of vagueness and, and uh, you know, lack of specificity, specificity built into that, to that whole modality of communication. So uh, the miscommunication is as much my fault as anyone, but there were people that said, well, we can do both. I mean, we could talk about policy and the racism. And of, of course that's true. My argument is you have to connect them. So yeah, I want Elizabeth Warren, for instance, everybody thought I was attacking Liz Warren, especially her people, because I kept saying, you know, the thing about I've got a plan or I've got a yeah. policy. I didn't mean to be any harsher to her than anyone else. But but 
Although I do think in, there are times when she comes across as the wonkier of the candidates. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I just don't think it's helpful. Um, what I was trying to say was, yeah, I want you to talk about, for instance, uh, Wall Street. I want you to talk, so if you're Bernie or you're, or you're Elizabeth Warren and you talk a lot about, about that, cool, talk about that, of course. But I think you should always be relating it back to yeah. the point that, hey, if you're struggling right now and you don't have retirement funds and you don't have health care and, and your roads are crumbling in your community and your schools don't have enough money, you know, that guy wants you to think it's brown and black folks. Mm -hmm. And here's who it really is. It's rich white people, mm -hmm. you know, who look down on you just like the president does. Like, in other words, you're always tying it back to the politics of prejudice. So even when you're talking, if you're talking about health care. Um, you know, some of the research has pointed out for years that the reason we don't have universal health care in a way that many European industrialized nations have it is because of a perception on the part of white Americans that all the benefits will go to those people and they will abuse them. Like, yeah. like we should be talking about that. Like the, our racial biases and ethnic and cultural biases are literally killing us because we would rather do without mm -hmm. than have them benefit. Like, it's, it, you know, that conversation should be the one every time they talk about policy, they should be linking it back to that. So I'm not saying ignore policy. I'm saying make the conversation about the politics of prejudice. And the good thing is, after it went viral, um, and I got no calls from candidates, uh, to be sure, but but I watched the next debate, and I watched some uh, different press work that the other candidates did. And I will say, and, and, I, and I can't say that I'm not going to take credit for it, because there were a lot of other people that were parroting what I said, and they, don't, they didn't necessarily hear it from me. They might have heard it from someone else. But I will tell you, there were people who very shortly afterward uh, in this campaign, all the way from from uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, to uh, to Bill de Blasio to Pete Buttigieg to uh, Marianne Williamson, who had already been talking about this a little bit, to some others um, that started to sound very similar. And they started talking about white supremacy and they started talking about multiracial democracy and Trumpism. Uh, Bill de Blasio actually used the term Trumpism. A few others did. Liz Warren in, in the next debate after it went viral made one of the points that I thought was so important and, I, and I've said this many times uh, for, for all the Democrats to make, which is every single person on this stage, all 3,711 of us, <laughs> we're all better than the guy we've got right now. Yeah. Like every single one, because that's the kind of unity message that is going to be needed to defeat not just Trump, but Trumpism. We, yeah. we don't have the luxury of all this sectarian bullshit. And so so I think that the message is, is getting through to an extent, Good. I hope that whoever the nominee is will take it and run with it in the general, because yeah. to me, they will have to do that. It, it may not be necessary to win the, the primary because mm -hmm. they're all trying to achieve themselves, but at the very least, when it comes time for a general election, if it's all about Donald Trump saying, build the wall, build the wall, make America great, and it's a Democrat talking about the 37 different ways that they're gonna raise taxes on the 1% and they're gonna put mm -hmm. some money back in your pocket and they're gonna raise the wealth tax on stock transactions and they're gonna get universal broadband for people in rural America and they're gonna change the structure of agricultural subsidies. And they're, you know, at some point, people's eyes are gonna glaze yeah. over and I think that's a very dangerous thing. So I don't know that I'm gonna be directly uh, asked to do any consulting, but I will continue to give my unsolicited uh, <laughs> advice, which is 
I, I, I mean, it's you know free advice. I probably should should charge for it. <laughs> well, I mean, and granted, I I'm, I'm going to give you more credit than you're giving yourself. Obviously, you put out this threat; it went viral, and then you were on MSNBC and you were on CNN talking about it. And obviously, people are paying attention, and I'm glad that they are. And this brings me to my last question, which is obviously white supremacy is global and it's on the rise. And um, you see people like Vladimir Putin and oligarchs, and and, and they're you know I mean it comes with misogyny. Um, but this whole idea of white supremacy, it's freaking me out because, well, first of all, I, um, I don't know if you've seen my pinned tweet, but I had the opportunity to live in Soviet Russia when I was 12 years old. So that was back in 1980-81. And yeah. um, I got to see what it was like to live in a communist country, and it was so horrifying. And granted, you know, Russia is all white. I never thought in terms of white supremacy at that point, but I, I get it now. And so yeah. when I... Um, look at what's happening. I always kind of look at it through that lens of, of you know, Trump not giving his loyalty to Putin, not to yeah. his own intelligence community, and wondering, I mean, I don't think America's going to turn into Soviet Russia, but I mean, I, yeah. I, I look at Putin and he is a Soviet person. He's KGB and he's one of the scariest people on earth. And he right. is working very hard um, to build white supremacy. So how do we overcome this globally? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a long, it's a long conversation. Yeah. I think there is a, uh, um, there's actually a really good piece that I read yesterday on Vox uh, about the rise of sort of illiberal politics on both the right and left, but especially looking at the right, sort of the anti-democratic, small d, democratic uh, project, and and in part, you know, the the analysis of that piece and many others, you know, the reason that we see this rise in ethno nationalism. Um, around the globe, this sort of far-right, neo-fascist uh, ethno-nationalism is, is uh, because of a number of different things that have happened, right? One uh, is certainly that when the Cold War ended, uh, whatever one can say about the dysfunctionality of it and whatever one can say about the dysfunctionality, certainly of Soviet-style socialism, um, one of the things that it kept in check were a lot of the nationalistic fervors of the various states that had been subsumed right into the Soviet empire. And so you had all of Eastern Europe that had been um, sort of, you know, um, brought into the orbit of the Soviet Union. And however horrific that was on a number of levels, it did keep in check some of these older animosities and ethnic animosities and hatreds. And once that was done, uh, and and once it was replaced, let's be honest, with a neoliberal project of this sort of unfettered capitalism. So now you have, you know, it's funny about Putin, right? Is this his former KGB who was who was perfectly happy working under Soviet-style communism, mm -hmm. and is perfectly happy working under a pseudo-capitalist oligarchic type system? Like this guy doesn't have this guy doesn't have the ideology of a Lenin. Or, or a Trotsky, mm -hmm. uh, or, or certainly a Stalin. He doesn't have any of the sort of socialist ideology. He's just a, he just wants power. Mm -hmm. He's very into power and, and control. So he can do that under under uh, Gorbachev. He can do that under Brezhnev. He can do that under whomever. Or he can do it under a bunch of oligarchs that pull the strings and have billions of dollars at their disposal. So so neoliberalism by by having this sort of this faith in the in the power of free markets. 
the sort of triumph of capitalism, all the Fukuyama end of history nonsense that he was pumping in the 90s, that somehow we're at the end of ideology and the end of history. The problem in neoliberalism is it's so incredibly empty. It's just this vacuous pursuit of material well-being. It doesn't speak to people's values. It's a very valueless thing, right? And so when you have an ideology that's rooted in, in, in a lack of value other than material value, other than consumption, other than having stuff, um, the the problem is from the right, what that does is it attacks tradition, right? It attacks the bonds of family and faith and community um, because it just makes everybody part of this, this big uh, conglomerate of, of consumers. And that is disruptive of sort of the, the traditional folk uh, connections that people had. That's the right wing critique, right? And then the left critique, of course, is that it turns everybody into just consumers and units of production and it's exploitative and it destroys opportunity for working class people and it only benefits the wealthiest 1% or one-tenth of 1%. And, and so from the right and the left, you have this sort of attack on neoliberalism and it's, and it's a question right now of which side of these you know, will prevail. And the white nationalist, ethno-nationalist project globally is very much about responding to that with this simplistic message of, we need to get back to simpler times when people didn't have to worry about, you know, competing in the marketplace and knocking each other over the head to get the, the best job or the best education and where the global elites weren't manipulating us all. It's part of their economic critique is very left. But their cultural critique is very right wing. It's very much the seedbed of fascism, right? The idea that once upon a time things were great, and if we can just get back to that mystical time, everything will be great again. That is the the philosophical seedbed of fascism, and that is where you have these quote unquote white nations um, that are looking at their folk patterns historically as being disrupted by cap by, by capitalism, but then they blame capitalism on sort of liberal elites because neoliberalism is in fact a capitalist project. We think of capitalism as something the conservatives like, but really it's, you know, Reagan was a neoliberal, Clinton was a neoliberal. They have a different version. One is a right-wing version of neoliberalism. One is a, is a more liberal version of neoliberalism, but it's both sort of predicated on the same idea and neither of the Clinton version or the Obama version on the one hand or the Reagan version and the Bush version on the other are really delivering the goods to the vast majority of people. And so then the question is, well, when the goods aren't being delivered to you, what's easier? Is it easier to actually fight for a world of real equity and justice for all, which means taking on the economic elites, or is it easier to punch down? right? Mm -hmm. By punching at immigrants, by punching at religious minorities, by blaming the people who are below you. And let's be honest, it's always easier to punch down. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take as much energy and you got a much bigger chance of winning. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's what we're up against. So I think in order to really deal with this, this monster globally, we obviously have to look at the problem as global and we have to respond to it by challenging the project of neoliberalism around the planet, whether it's with regard to trade policy, economic policy, uh, foreign policy, and start to really uh, uh, you know, talk about creating a world that is much more just and much more equitable. And I think about that with regard to the immigration crisis. Uh, you know, when you think about immigration, whether it is coming to this country or or people leaving North Africa going into Europe, what what is mass migration except evidence of a breakdown in the global economic order? Right. That that's why people leave because they're suffering, they're starving, they can't make it. They're either being politically or economically oppressed. So the the project for the left is to try to create a more 
equitable distribution of power politically and economically around the planet. It's yes. not about building walls and keeping people out. It's about changing the distribution of power. Because I got news for you. The people who would most like Mexicans to stay in Mexico are Mexicans. They would mm -hmm. love to not have to leave, right? right. Nobody yeah. wants to leave. Nobody likes moving. Mm -hmm. Nobody yeah. likes picking up their shit. And like, my, you know, my wife and I built a house uh, seven years ago that's like three blocks from where we lived before. You think that shit was fun? We hated that. It was three blocks. Yeah. Nobody wants to go thousands of miles or across an ocean. They would love to stay where they are. Yeah. But the neoliberal global economic order creates drama, creates crisis, creates dislocation. And then people are on the move. And instead of responding to that by the creation of a different global order, we build a wall, which is sort of like setting fire to a house and then blocking the emergency yeah. exit. Wow. You know, which is clearly uh, an unjust thing, but and that's why we get this kind of political breakdown that we've got right now. Wow. Well, you know, I'm just going to throw something out there um, to you and to whoever may be listening. I, I've, I've had this idea that hasn't really um, taken off, and I wish that it would, and I, I don't know, maybe you can give me an opinion as to why it wouldn't, but I was just thinking, just in terms of the United States, um, you know, we're constantly getting clobbered every day. We're being assaulted by the news, by what Trump is doing, and um, the white supremacy thing scares the shit out of me. Uh, so I was thinking, what we kind of need is is like hope, right? We need to we need to feel um, unified. We need to feel that there's hope. And I thought. I wish that we could, if somebody like Bob Geldof would come along and do like yeah. a 21st century live aid. And yeah. what we could do is just have a whole bunch of bands. You know, we could have people like uh, the Rolling Stones from Beyonce to, you know, I mean, just across the board, um, across the decades. And yeah. then it would be for, it would be to raise money for um, organization, organizations that fight white supremacy, like global organizations. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that that would definitely stop it, but it would certainly, I think, A, bring attention to it, and it, B, to, you know, I mean, obviously when Live Aid happened, it was just this monumental event, and it made people right. feel. And right. right now, we've been feeling like we've been beaten up, and we feel hopeless and helpless, and I've, you know, I noticed it's kind of getting better, but I noticed several weeks back, the, the reason I even came up with this is because I've, I've been watching on Twitter, which I practically live, where people say, you know, oh, there's no hope, he's going to win, we're never going to, you know, this country is done, it's toast, and it's like, really, no, it isn't, we still yeah. have hope. Um, right. I think that if we lose 2020 and Donald Trump, quote, air quote, wins, okay, uh, my hope will be gone. I mean, if yeah. we keep the Senate, if, if Democrats win the Senate and keep the House, I think there's a little tiny bit of hope. Yeah. But um, I just feel like, you know, I, I can't do this concert. I don't know the Rolling Stones. I don't know right. Beyonce. But I, right. I throw it out into the universe because I think that, you know, it would, it, I think it would be a great time to do it. It would probably be like next September. Um, yeah. You know, so I don't know who you know. I don't know who's listening to this, <laughs> but you know, hey, I think that's something that would be beneficial for us collectively. And then, like when Live Aid happened back in the '80s, I believe other countries did their own right. versions of it. So you know, this is something that's a world issue, and right. um, mm -hmm. so it's not just a. And you know, and the thing is, is the person who's the president of the United States affects the globe. So yeah. it's not just something for America, but, you know, right. I just needed to throw that out. Well, there. no, I, I think it's a really, a really quite brilliant idea for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, um, because it does uh, it, 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 it makes a point that is obviously political, uh, but it does so in a way that, that relies on art to yes. make that point. Exactly. Rather than <laughs> talking heads and 
pundits and and uh, things of that nature. And we know from both Live Aid and and um, uh, you know there are other examples of that as well that art can be very influential. I mean, yeah. I can tell you right now that some of my politics. Um, come from you know listening to punk music in the 80s like a lot of my politics comes hmm. from from oh, punk that's so music cool. i used to listen to punk yeah i mean listening to punk and 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 then some early hip-hop as well and i think a lot of people come to politics now through various versions of uh, various uh, portions of of hip-hop music and hip-hop culture as well um and so i think that there is number one a real power in art and then secondly um i think it's brilliant because it does signify global resistance to mm -hmm. a global yes. problem rather than just like the women's march which signifies national resistance mm -hmm. on one level to one politician this would be a much bigger thing and there is actually uh, sort of a uh, an, an organizational basis for it you know in europe there has been and particularly in england there has been this i think it's called love music hate racism movement for several years i believe that's the i think that's the the the, the title of the organ of the movement mm -hmm. and it's all about sort of fighting racism in entertainment and racism throughout um, uh, throughout the European Union. And, um, you know, so there is sort of a basis for for that kind of, of, of movement. And I think that um, whether it's Geldof, I don't know who would do it, you know. Yeah. Um, I guess Bob Geldof is still alive, shit, I honestly don't. <laughs> I, don't I think he I'm, is, too. Well, I, I think, think, I think though, with Live Aid, there was an issue with where the money went. So maybe not yeah, Bob right, Geldof. <laughs> right, maybe not Bob, right, right. But, but you know, but I mean, there, there's got to be a way... To, and here's what would be so brilliant about it, too. There is one thing that I think we all know Donald Trump cares more about than anything else, mm -hmm. and that is his own public image. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump loves more than anything is being applauded by celebrities. Like, he really yes. cares what celebrities think. He doesn't give a shit what you think about him or what I think about him or what the average person on the street. He didn't, he didn't really give a shit what those people at his rallies think about him. But what he cares about is what, you know, what does Kanye think, right? Yeah, and Chrissy what Teigen. Does, <laughs> what does Kim Kardashian, what does, yeah, what does Chrissy Teigen think? What yeah. does John Legend think? Yeah. What did these people, and so that's why he always wanted, that's why he wanted to move to do Celebrity Apprentice yeah. rather than just The Apprentice, because he wanted to be surrounded by celebrities, even if it was, you know, Meatloaf and, mm -hmm. and Gary Busey, like anybody <laughs> with name recognition, it's like, oh yeah, that's great, you know? And and so if, if you get a... a a series of concerts or a couple of days of music mm -hmm. where you've got basically every big name, mm -hmm. every big name that you could possibly have. And he is left with, you know, Lee Greenwood yeah. and John Rich, <laughs> you know, and, and, and a hand and, you know, whoever else. Like Ted Nugent. <laughs> right, Ted Nugent. Right. Right. Exactly. You got Ted Nugent, you got Lee Greenwood, you got a handful of like loser yeah. people who nobody gives a shit about anymore. <laughs> and then you've got, uh, you know, actually cutting edge artists and all these people are showing up for these concerts. It would drive him absolutely off the deep end, which, of course, could be incredibly dangerous. And then right. he pushes the button and all die. But at least in theory, <laughs> it's a great idea. And I hope that someone that hears and I'll, I'll amplify it. We can continue to push it. And hopefully, you know, somebody that's good at event promotion can can figure out a way to put it together because I think it's a very inspired idea. And I think, uh, and it would, it would give a certain degree of hope or at least common purpose. Yeah. And I feel like that is the thing that is missing in mm -hmm. our politics around the world is people want desperately to feel as though when they engage in politics, 
it's about something bigger than the moment. So it's not, you know, because a lot of times we, we drag ourselves to the polls and we vote for people that don't really inspire us. Mm -hmm. We vote people that weren't our first choice, but it's like, all right, whatever. And sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And, and that's fine. But wouldn't it be nice to say, even if you're having to vote for somebody that maybe wasn't your first choice, at least your reason for doing it is not just so you can like squeeze out a win, but so you can actually make a statement yeah. that says, Today, I voted for pluralistic, multiracial democracy and against fascism. And, and, you know, like they always give you those stickers when you go vote to say, I voted. Yeah. Like, screw that. Let's make stickers that say, like, <laughs> I voted against fascism today. Yeah. Right. I voted for multiracial democracy today and actually make it about that, you know, and actually allow people to feel connected to why it is that they're voting, not just going through the motions. And so I think something like that kind of concert would be right in that in that vein. And I think it's a great idea. Well, thank you. And like, you know, like I said, I mean, if you come across anybody in your travels, feel free to just mention it to them. I did actually write an article. I'll send it to you. But I wrote an article about it on my Patreon page, just outline, uh, outlining everything that I think we could do. And it just it just needs to be found by the right people. I tried to contact some people on my own and it's just gone nowhere. Um, yeah. People do think it's a good idea, but it's just that one person who needs to be inspired and motivated to get it going. So, you well, know, I know a few folks, so I can throw some, I, awesome. I can throw it out there to some people. Yeah, for sure. Uh, cool. For well, sure. I will send that article to you and thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so glad oh. to talk to you. You're brilliant. You're funny. And, um, you, I've learned so much from you. I didn't even touch on some of the things that I want to talk about. So maybe one day you can come back. I would love that. Well, thank you so much. And I'm going to put all the information on where to find you, your website, and everything in the text of the Patreon um, description of the show. Thank you, Tim, so much. You bet. Well, wasn't he just fantastic? Wow. I mean, I you know, there are so many different things that I uh, took notes on in, in research to do this interview, and we didn't even get to them because um, there just wasn't enough time. So he's got to come back. <laughs> um Wow, I, I'm just floored by, by what a great guest he is, and, and what a great American, what a great patriot, so smart, so interesting, and even funny. Um, alrighty, so that's about it. Please follow me on Twitter, if you don't, at author Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y, and check out my Amazon page. You can see all my books, The Virgin Diaries, Peyton's Choice about abortion, teen abortion, woo! Um, I also uh, wrote American Woman, and... Ain't No Sunshine, Men Reveal the Pain of Heartbreak. Definitely want to check out my books, but most importantly, please become a patron and support the show. I would really, really, really appreciate it. I love what I do, and I need a little help, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. So anyway, just go to patreon.com slash start me up and become a patron today. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.